Well, it's that time again to say welcome to Life of Brian, dot, 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 Maddox, that is the podcast with Brian Maddox. Uh, I thought we'd change the name of the show, Kev. Um, I saw in our little meeting you'd listed the uh, the uh, video link up as Life of Bullpen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it is. That's ca- that's code. That's special code so uh, computer hackers won't uh, won't jump in and, and ruin our recording session. I don't want them to know what we're recording on. So I use that as a code, uh, covert operation code. Well, you don't want any Russian disinformation <laughs> penetrating our show. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, like that's going to happen. Well, uh, the Russians don't know what a bullhead is. Exactly. <laughs> well, only have to look at the listen to this podcast for two seconds and you have the absolute English definition of it right there. Welcome to the show. Got a terrific guest for you this week in Les Gock, and we'll talk about him in a minute. But before we get to Murkots and before we get to Les Gock, you have been swanning around rubbing shoulder pads with the rich and famous. I'm very impressed. Oh, well, yes, I did. I had, um, I was fortunate enough, um, for those in the state, they probably don't know who Peter Hitchener is, but he's uh, been reading the news for 50 years in Melbourne and um, he's a bit of an icon down there. Anyway, because he'd been reading the news for 50 years, they had this big party and because I'm a big fan of the way he says to the weather girl, thank you, Lavinia, <laughs> um, or thank you, Tony, um, when he's doing the sport, um, I got invited, and my daughter got invited because he sent me a message for my 60th birthday. All oh, right, and yeah, he did a video message for me, so that was terrific. And so we went down to the this uh, big do for Peter Hitchens and surprise do, and um, oh, everybody was there. It was uh, Tony Goldsmith was there, and Peacock was there, Sam Newman was there. I had a little chat to Tony Jones and Brian Taylor, and um, yeah, it was a. I was, unfortunately, I had to work. But um, so I couldn't stay that long. But it was really nice. It was really good, sort of hobnobbing around with people about a foot and a half taller than me. <laughs> um, you know, uh, talking to Brian Taylor and Sam Newman, it's like I get a sore neck. I thought you might have been seconded to sing your, you know, your song uh, because it was his fifty-year anniversary. I thought they might well, have asked you to do a special version of it for Pete. Well, they didn't, but it would have made sense, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Because um, a couple of people said to me, oh, "Are you singing?" You seen 50 years here tonight. I went, oh, no, I didn't think of that. But, um, yeah, it was really good. It was all laid on, um, open bar, and, uh, yeah, it was a very good, fun thing. And then I raced off and did a gig, and that was good too. So You can, uh, was- you can hear Peter Hitchner on this podcast. In the very early days of this podcast, we got uh, mm. Hitch on to have a chat, and uh, and you and he, uh, obviously, as a result of that, became, uh, you know, mates. And that he's, he's just, he is one of the nicest blokes in, uh, I know that's uh, the, the well-trodden out phrase, but he fits the description of being one of the truly nice guys of the industry. Well, I first met him when I went to uh, Sam Newman's golf tournament. And um, my mate told me that, no, you can't play. You, people want to win this stuff. You're too shit out. So, like, oh, okay. So, anyway, Pete was pretty much the same. So, me and Pete went and had a golf lesson off a golf pro, which was pretty good. Yeah. And and so it became pretty good. But that golf day was a beauty because Jeff Kennett was there. And we were raising money for um, to help, you know, disadvantaged kids or something. Anyway, the girl driving Jeff Kennett around in a um, golf cart. She ran over a little kid and his mother and <laughs> oh, broke the kid's leg 
And then they pulled down all the signage because Channel 7 <laughs> chopper was above going, oh, they've done this. So rather than help the kids, we actually broke one of them's legs. So, uh, But it's, that was a good day too. Raising yeah. raising money and spending it at the same time. <laughs> well, yeah. It's, here's, here's, how, here's how your donation works. Yeah, Little we're going to send this kid in the ambulance <laughs> to hospital and uh, we've got the money to pay for the fare. Yeah, so yeah. great. This young boy wasn't disadvantaged before the golf tournament, but he is now. Um, we raised more money than we needed, so we figured one more disadvantaged kid. Here we go. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Well, I'm, I'm pleased you had a good time with, uh, with Hitch because he is, as I said, truly one of the nicest blokes going around and very active on social media if you if you want to follow someone and, uh, and, and get a smile out of their posts. He's the person to uh, to do it with because he's uh, he's good value. Now our guest this week is Les Gock. We'll talk about him in a tick. But our of course our fabulous podcast partners are Murcotts. There'll be driving no, excellence. There'll be no driving over little children if you've if you've been to Murcotts. I can tell you that right now. Well, you know that's right. Even if you know you're just burning around in a golf cart. I'm not sure I'm they sure do Mer- golf cart uh, defensive driving courses, but you know, could be something. I'm sure Mark you can sort of make an exception <laughs> if you were really keen to do that, because you know we don't want to be running over little kids at golf courses. No, we don't. Um, and if you have the basics of uh, of how to drive a vehicle, well, you can transfer that to any sort of vehicle that you happen to be behind the wheel of. Well, well that's right. You could go and you know do the course at Murcotts, and it'll help you with your golf cart. It'll also maybe you got a billy cart. Your Sherman you know, tank. Your Sherman tank. Yep. Your ocean liner. You can drive them all. <laughs> Fantastic. Well. <laughs> The number to ring is one three hundred triple five five seven six. Get on the line and give them a call. One three hundred triple five five seven six. Mercots.edu.au. That is the website. Now, Les Gock, what a beauty Les Gock is, and I know we're going to talk about it in this uh, in this interview we do with Les. But you and he hooked up and had uh, a lot of fun, which we'll reminisce about and on the countdown show. Yeah, look, I was a huge Hush fan, um, and you know, I remember my brother saying to me. He's going, oh, come on, we can go to my music bowl and see ACDC. I said, nah, I want to go to Festival Hall and see Hush. <laughs> <laughs> my, brother, my brother couldn't work that out. But um, and in hindsight, I'm not sure that I couldn't either. But um, <laughs> So I've never – I've seen ACDC once and that was with entertainment at, at the, you know, the football ground and I could barely see them. But um, anyway, no, I was a huge fan of Hush. I thought they just – was such a great live band and flashbots going off and the scarves. And having the two Chinese guys was really cool. Yes. Um, well, Les talks about that too and how that, that came about. Uh, he also talks about the, the post-hush and the, the jingle business that uh, that he became so successful in and what he's up to today. So it's a, it's a wide-ranging and a Les Gok only episode. So well, it's all Les. Dedicated the, the whole, well, it's like the Bay City Rollers. It's all Les. And Les. Oh, <laughs> Brian, I've warned That's you about good, that. It? No, it's yeah. not. So I'll take that you was through. an old 70s joke. Yeah, thank it's you. not uh, appropriate for today. We'll take you through uh, Les's career, uh, hush, uh, pre-hush, hush, post-hush, the jingles, everything, all coming up uh, with thanks to, uh, to Murcott. So enjoy our chat with the one and only Les Gock.
Kevin. Les, how you going? Good. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine, mate. And uh, so too can one Brian Mannix. One Brian Mannix. Hey, Les, how are you? There's uh, only one. Two by <laughs> oh, please, One's please. <laughs> no, One's right there, right there. One might even be more than we need. Yes, I think so. <laughs> How are you, mate? You well? Well, very well. I mean, I'm still standing, which is, that's pretty good. Yeah, bloody oath it is. Yeah. Brian and I were yeah. just, just yeah. prior to ringing this number, we were talking about our latest doctor's appointments. Aren't we thrilled? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. there's a huge list, right? A big list of doctor's appointments. <laughs> uh, so what are you what yeah. are you up to these days? Let's f- fill in the dots of what you're doing. Well, uh, music-wise, I'm enjoying music more than I probably have for ages. Um, I've got a band. I've, I've got... Yeah, a couple of bands that are kicking around, but really just one, which is which is a mates I, I went to school with, a couple of guys I went to school with. Is this the Interceptors? And, yeah, the Interceptors, and there's a few other guys who have kind of joined along the way. None of them were professional musicians, but they're more passionate uh, than a lot of professional guys because it's not their job, it's their passion, you know. And so yeah. we just play... Um, Stuff that I grew up with, which when I was a kid, I just thought, oh, my God, you know, this, it doesn't get better than this. I wish I could play this. Uh, and so it's taken 50 ideas to, to learn the songs. And so we play. And then, of course, you know, there's no point making money out of it. There's, there's, you know, so we just play for charity. Um, and we just uh, find some good charities. And, you know, we raise a few grand each time we play. So, you know, that's good for them, good for us. We get an audience. We get to play all the stuff we want to play, and then, yeah, all good. What um, is the stuff that you want to play in this band, Les? Well, it's all the stuff I used to listen to. There used to be a show on, I think it was TUW, late on a Friday night, called Thompson Underground. And it was John Thompson, who was the DJ. And, and when I heard that, it just blew my mind. It's the first time I properly heard Hendrix, all the Cream stuff, John Mayall, you know, 10 years after, you, I could keep going, you know, Rory Gallagher, you know, it just introduced me to all these, all this stuff, which every time I listened to it, I just went, oh my God, this is so great. This is so me. Uh, it was really kind of, you know, that whole English blues thing, you know. So, um, and, uh, you know, then, then came Zeppelin, then Purple and, you know, and on it went. So that was, I mean, all the kids of my age, that's what we grew up on. And um, uh, that's and and that's what I still love. I still and I, I just we we get up and play this stuff, and, I, and which I thought was never humanly possible because it was so um, so well past my skill set. But then somehow I've kind of picked up that skill set along the way. Didn't you? Didn't you though? In that early band, was it Chariot? Your, your first band when you did the yeah. battle of, when you did the battle of the bands thing with Chariot? Didn't you yeah. do a Rory Gallagher and Ten Years After? Songs? We did. Yeah. We did. We did. We got the chance to do two songs, and you know, as as uh, I don't know what I was sixteen or seventeen or something, and we went, oh yeah, let's get up there and we'll play um, uh, Ten Years After Going Home, and we'll do a Rory Gallagher song which no one's ever heard of called Laundromat, you know. <laughs> Now, all the surfers who were in the in the audience, you know, because it was, you know, there, there was a whole bunch of underground people that didn't, you know, and they sort of went, oh, cool, someone's playing a Rory Gallagher song. Jeez. Now, 
um, we got a really great reception, even though we were probably crap. But I mean, we, we you know, we, we played the stuff and uh, the, the, the silly band won it on the day. I just thought, oh, they're losers. And, and they're a band called Sherbet. And, um, <laughs> you know, they're in, they're in the same heat as us. And I thought, oh, mate, that's, oh, that, that's terrible. Why would they win? <laughs> yeah, well, they, they didn't. They didn't go on to kick on to do anything much. Did no, they? that's right. I mean, seriously, I you know I was right. And again, you know, over the years, I was right about a whole lot of bands. I mean, I remember in Western Australia, uh, we're playing, and somebody said, "Oh, you can't go and see this band." You know, uh, these guys are really great. And so I remember Rick and I went to this club, and it was like five people in it. And there's this band, and I thought these guys aren't going to get anywhere. The covers band, I mean, uh, they're okay. And what they call in excess, you know. So I thought, no, nah, this guy's never going to cut it. Jesus, you've got a great ear for music, Les. <laughs> yeah, no, top. I, 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 did, I said the same thing about Dragon. We were playing in New Zealand. Somebody said, oh, there's a great band. They're, they're coming along. They're going. And again, another only five people there, and, and Rick and I were two of them. And we thought, Jesus, is this, is this all they can do over here? <laughs> Mind you, has to be said on the uh, on a bad night, Dragon weren't worth seeing. Yeah, that's well, yes, that, that was later on. But early early days, they were actually great. But I mean, look, you know, you're getting up in front of five people. It's not really yeah. inspiring stuff. And uh, uh, I pretty much said the same thing about ACDC too early on too. <laughs> I heard you. I heard you reckon the Beatles were rubbish. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 did. I thought they were kind of rubbish compared to you know, um, yeah, Eric Clapton and John Mayall and all that kind of stuff. So how did you? How did you finish up in Hush? How did that? How did that? How did you go from Chariot to Hush? Where did that connection sort of? Well, happen? that happened on that day. Oh wow! On the day that those losers Sherbet won, <laughs> um, you know, there was uh, Rick and Smiley were in the audience because they were looking for a guitar player because their guitar player, uh, their guitar player's girlfriend, uh, thought, "Oh, enough is enough. You're spending too much time with this stupid band. You know, um, you have to leave them." So they needed to find a guitar. Now, they had just won uh, their heat the week before, um, and they were a very different band. They were very much like, in those days, if you remember, a band called Autumn. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that kind of stuff, very light, very cheesy. You know, that's, that's what they were into. But they kind of wanted to be a bit, you know, ballsier than that. Um, anyway, they were just sniffing around. They thought, oh, we'll go to a couple of these heats, see if we can find a guitar player that we can con into joining the band. And um, they saw me, and then I was probably standing on my head, you know, playing guitar upside down or whatever it is I was doing mm-hmm. uh, and making a lot of noise. And, uh, and Smiley said, what about that guy? And Rick said, sorry, yep, not that guy. And uh, Smiley said, yeah, yeah, what, what about him? He said, but he's a Chinaman, you know. We we can't have two. Oh God! We can't have two oh, in the band. And so I said, "Why not? You know, it'd be bookends. It'll be fantastic." Um, anyway, they they approached me on that day, and then they said, "Look, uh, we're in this band, Hush." I already knew who they were because I, we saw the heat the week before, and we thought, "Oh, these guys are rubbish," like all the other rubbish <laughs> bands. You know? um, and um, and they said, look, uh, we're looking for a guitar player. Would you want to come to a meeting and, you know, meet our manager and all that kind of stuff? And uh, so I said, no, oh, I don't know. Look, I don't know, really. I mean, yeah, this is the band I'm in, the 
chariot. And uh, they said, yeah, but how many gigs do you guys do? Uh, and I thought about it. I thought maybe we do two gigs a year. Um, and uh, they said, look, we do two gigs a week. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I said, okay, all right, I'll come along. And the other guys in the chariot said, yeah, you should go. You should go, you know. So I went to this meeting and and the first thing they asked me was, uh, okay, fine. Um, listen, by the way, do you, do you, are you into drugs? Um, and I wanted to be cool because I, I actually never, they didn't take any, you know, I wasn't going into it. Um, I couldn't afford it for that. Um, and so I said, yeah, you have short cool, you know, and they said, well, we're not. Oh. I thought, ah. <laughs> so that didn't go down, you know, anyway. <laughs> anyway, that's how it all started and somehow I ended up in the band and, and, uh, I don't know, I, I made, I, I, I cranked it up. I ended up with two 200 watt Marshall Stacks slaves, and that was enough noise for them. So that was good. Wow. Was Keith in the band then? Yeah, yeah. Now Keith actually, yeah, Keith okay. and um, and Robin, who was the guitar player that left, uh, started the band because they came over from Norwich. They were in a like a little band in Norwich, and uh, they came out as ten pound poms or whatever they were, and. Um, and they wanted to start a band here. And I think the first guy they recruited, I think, might have been Rick. Um, and then that sort of went from there, really. Uh, but they, they they were really into it. They were big into playing harbour cruises and, you know, uh, people's weddings and stuff. So a steady stream of income started. When, when did the kind of, uh, hang on, we're going to be a recording band. When did that happen? Uh, that happened sort of fairly early on, about sort of, I don't know, maybe three, four months into the band, and uh, we were getting, you know, for for the gigs that we were doing, we were getting stupendous reactions. Somebody said, "Well, you know, we, we're going to have to write our own songs." Everyone just sort of looked at each other, and I was the only guy with like a a guitar that you know could make sort of harmonic sense of anything. Uh, so we decided that as a band. Um, you know, Keith was like, he was very mechanical. So he, his job was to look after the truck. Uh, Smiley came from being a tailor making policemen's uniforms. So he was going to sew up the costumes. Rick was good at designing. He was going to design the costumes. And me, you know, what's left for Les to do? Oh, you can write the songs. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we wrote uh, a thing called Get the Feeling. Yeah. Uh, which uh, then... Um, Somebody said, well, okay, uh, you know, uh, Warner Brothers, who were assigned to at the time, they said, look, they can give you an hour in the studio. So do whatever you can in that hour. And uh, that's all, but they're not paying for it anymore. So we went in there and did get the feeling, and somehow it was top 10 in on 2FM and also in, of all places, Perth. Wow. Wow. I saw a, I saw a, I saw some video footage of that when I was looking around at stuff uh, in the last twenty four hours. My God, your hair I reckon was was touching the the back of your uh, your knees. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, back in those days, that was the rigueur. Could you have been skinnier? I, no, I, I wore. Um, I remember the jeans I wore were size twenty eight, and they were hanging off me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that goes with um, our on-the-road diet. 
which in those days, as uh, Brian will remember, in those days it was uh, uh, Chico Rolls were very high on the list of the um, healthy food that we would have. Certainly, if you went to a place with meat pies, it'd be pretty pretty good. Um, and uh, to you know, on on exotic nights out, you go to the you know whatever the country town is, and 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 have sweet and sour pork in there. You know, the local Chinese, which usually who knows what what it was made of, but um, oh, God. you know, but that was that was the rock and roll diet, I think. Yeah. So after you've done the first single, um, is Walking the next one? Walking was the next single, but in between, yeah. what happened was that. Uh, uh, Warner Brothers had uh, decided, you know, because we kept pestering them, oh, you know, can we do an album? Can we do an album? And again, they in the in the end, they just said, just to get you off our back, and because you've had a top ten single, I mean, you really need to have two or three of these top ten singles before you do an album. But uh, here's an idea: you've got half a day now to do the album. Uh, go in and do the album in half a day. And we went to a place called United Sound. I don't know if you, you might not have been in Sydney at the time, Brian. But anyway, it's a little studio called United Sound. And what we decided to do was, because we had a, a pretty strong set um, that seemed to go down really well, uh, we just did the set live. Um, we recorded it live, and it was literally mixed on the go. Uh, we made it in the, in the half day. Um, and they released it. It was called The Loud and Live, and the silly thing went gold. Oh, wow. Um, uh, wow. So all of a sudden, Warner Bros. is going, okay, maybe we can... And, and by that time, we said, too late. Um, we've signed to this other guy called Robbie Porter, and and then we went on from there. How did Robbie oh. find you, Les? Uh, well, the guy who had was working at uh, Warner Brothers, a guy called Tony Hogarth, was recruited by Robbie. And Robbie wanted to, you know, he saw a lot of potential in Australian artists. He'd already discovered Rick Springfield. Yep. He'd already discovered uh, and made huge uh, Daddy Cool. Um, and he had a whole lot of other bands, particularly Melbourne bands of the day, uh, Healing Force and um, those kind of people who, who he'd signed. And so he was, he was really searching for stuff. And Tony Hogarth said, well, there's this band that, you know, uh, we were trying to sign at, at Warner Brothers. I think they come and have us, come and check them out. And so Robbie, you know, who was living in L.A., you know, came and um, he saw us at a gig. There was like a thousand kids. They all went completely nuts. And, and you know, he, he just went backstage and said, I want to sign you. I want to sign you tonight. Now, <laughs> so that's that's how it happened. Oh wow! Jeez, there you go. Yeah, and and then and all. I mean, uh, his history, uh, Robbie's history. Unfortunately, Robbie's passed now. Yep. But you know, I mean, five minutes later, he, he said, uh, "This girl over here, I want to sign her now." And that was Marsha Hines. <laughs> uh, then there's a whole lot of acts who nobody. I mean, people thought, "Mate, Robbie, you've really lost the plot here now." I mean. Air supply? Why would you sign air supply? You know, they barely can have it in Australia. You know, he said, no, these guys will be number one in America. And they're going, wow, Rob, you've, you've really lost the plot. <laughs> well, they sold, they had more number ones than the Beatles. 
Yeah, crazy, isn't it? Clearly he didn't ask you for any musical uh, help with uh, selecting artists, Les. Well, he knew exactly to ask me, and whatever I said, he'd do the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So your stage act, you're always great live, and I'm just wondering, um, was the stage act always there or did that evolve along the way? Because, you know, you you had... Choreographed sort of bits with you and Rick that looked great and, and Keith. It was just a great band live. Yeah, yeah. No, look, the the stage thing was the uh, what Hush was before I came along was you know Autumn or you know, you know all those bands that used to be on Happening Seventy. You know, like all um, kind of early Zoot, if you like. Zoot was was kind of their heroes, which understandable. Yeah. But you know, it was sort of a very soft. Um, kind of choreography, if you like. Um, I I was brought up, as I said, on all the acts that I love, but the, the obviously the, the god that I looked up to was Hendrix, and it, it was just I I just totally understood that, and I understood Townsend, and I understood the the kind of stage act, which is just comes from, you know, you just. Just do it. You just feel it. You just, you know, and it's it's not, you don't kind of plan it. You just do it. You know, you just get out there and because you're so passionate about what you're doing when you're on stage, you just sort of go, this is what it feels like to me. And um, uh, so when I joined Hush, I mean, they really liked that because, but I was kind of this guy out of my own. <laughs> uh, but Keith got it because he was, you know, he, he and and Rick and everyone else got into the whole sort of let's uh, no let's really crank up the whole stage act because it was it was something that we did. We didn't sort of sit down and go, okay, you stand over there, you you jump up and down here, I'll go, move over there. It just evolved and became as more gigs we did, and we did a lot of gigs. Uh, it became, you know, we just sort of knew what everyone else was doing. And then every now and then we'd accidentally do something together and go, yeah, that's cool. Let's do that every now and then. But no, not in any planned position or time or whatever. And um, I think, you know, that sort of more organic sort of stage show thing, I think went down really well. It was just, just what how I did. Flash you know? pots, how, many, how many flash pots do you reckon you use per show? Well, um, yeah, well, the flashbots came a little bit later. Um, right. Now, uh, Brian, you'll remember that the um, most of the road crew uh, weren't tertiary educated, or you know, didn't have uh, degrees in flashbots. And uh, uh, one of the flashbot incidents, which was in Maryborough, Queensland, was that uh, we, we had this gig, and. Um, you know, in that you know, obviously you come on stage in the dark, and I usually come on stage and I stand in front of my amps and just kind of make a little tinkling, you know, just touch, make sure the guitar's working, and then I'm, I'm, I'm there and I'm trying to make a sound. There's no sound going on. I'm yelling out to the road crew, and they can't hear me. So I walk up to the front of the stage just to make sure something, everything's plugged in, uh, and then the flash pots go up for, on the first song. And then so do I go up. I get blown up. Oh. And uh, that was the end of the show, and I got rushed to the hospital. What happened? Because the flash pot was next to where my wah-wah pedal and my other pedals were, 
Uh, and it was meant to go off on the very first note, right, that we play. Uh, but nothing, I, I couldn't make a note because, it, you know, the amps weren't working. Something wasn't working. And I, I went up to the front of the stage to find, see if I could find what was going wrong. And then, the you know, it was the first note was supposed to be played and um, and I was standing next to the flashback. Wooshka. I know yeah. when we had flashbots and in them days, you'd go to a gun shop and you'd buy a tin of um, gunpowder <laughs> and then you'd have a little box and they'd put yeah. a little bit of copper wire in it and then they'd hook it up to a, a car battery, with this way we yeah. did, and then that would short out the little wire and it would yeah. set the flashbot off. But, Very you know, you got a roadie called Bong Zoll and he's going, oh, we're going to have a good one tonight, and he's just blowing, <laughs> blowing the shit out of things. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that's the uh, technical uh, term of it, yeah. So given, uh, so given the highly flammable nature of most of the costumes you wore in those days, um, did, yeah. did, did you, um, I mean, God, it's a wonder you didn't go up. Did you get Well, I did. I, I, I did. I ended up with half the costume that I had, like, to me. Oh God! Like, literally burnt on me. So, uh, but uh, anyway, that's that's rock and roll, as they say. Oh Jesus! Well, yeah. <laughs> that that ride with Hush was it? Is uh, I mean, and, and I watched it from the radio point of view. I was I was on radio in yeah. Brisbane and, and Melbourne during the during the really halcyon days of your career. You were you you were gods. You were just the big 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 rock stars. Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, no, I think there was a couple of, there's a few things that all kind of conspired um, together at the time. Um, firstly, um, we were, as we were just saying, we were very, very much a live stage band. You can plonk us in front of 20,000 people or in front of, you know, 100 people and we'll do the same show. And But we're, we're designed... Our, our band was designed to, to be play it big. Yep. And so um, our manager, Peter Ricks, uh, went and had a chat to Sherbet's manager, uh, Roger Davies. Um, this is, you know, Sherbet were big um, and, um, and, and we were uh, big. And then they conspired to say, look, remember in the old days with uh, Cold Joy and the you know, whole bandstand days, they used to tour all the country towns. They said, why don't we see if we can, you know, crank that up because I reckon there'd be an audience in those country towns uh, that would come and see, you know, acts now because they have, they've been starved of music. Um, and so uh, uh, they, you know, basically I said, between Peter and Roger Davies, they just said, well, you go north, we'll go south, and then when you finish there, we'll swap around. We'll go again. And so we started the whole touring or restarted the, the, the concept of touring. Uh, and that became really successful. So we'd already built this audience right around the country before Countdown. Um, right. And so by the time Countdown happened, all of a sudden instead of us playing to, you know, quite a few hundred people each night, uh, if you're on Countdown, and my calculations I think were this, you were playing in front of three million people um, yeah. because it was – because it was on the Sunday night and replayed on the on the Saturday, the following Saturday or whatever, and three million people, because it was the big, you know, everyone knows it was the biggest show on on earth at the time. Yeah. Um, three million people 
when the population of Australia was 15 million people, I mean, there there isn't nothing now that gets 3 million people. Maybe the Matildas, you know. <laughs> um, but that's, that's when you've got a population of 25 million people. So we yeah. were... We were burned into the minds of Australia, you know, via the ABC, which went to every country town, went to every place, you know, uh, you could possibly go to. We were burned into the psyche of, of the, 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 the kids, the teenagers, the parents, the everybody else uh, at the time. So that conspired to to make us big too. And, and we were – a band like Hush was built for – Countdown, because Countdown was about other television starting. Uh, it was all black and white before that. Yeah. Countdown happened. Yeah. Color television. Uh, who was the you know the most outrageously dressed band in the country with the most outrageous act? You know, at the time it was us, yeah. because everyone else was still wearing denims and and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, and we were the first glam rock band, so. You know, we were a match made in heaven with with uh, Countdown. So, you know, all those things, as I said, conspired together to you know make it make it work for us. Yeah. Can I ask you about Get Rock, Les? Um, yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's your best song, but no. you just can't ignore it. You just can't ignore it. It's a great rock song. Um, how did that song come about? It's you know, in my mind, I can see where it started, but you tell me. Well, well, what it was, uh, okay, it, it started off literally with, uh, so we, you know, we're sitting around thinking, oh, we better write some songs. Um, uh, and um, Robbie Porter from, from On High over in LA somewhere, he had this thought. He said, oh, can you write a song called Get Rocked? I can see that being great because, you know, you guys are great audience, you know, people. Uh, and, you know, you can hear this song, Get Rock. And at first I thought, that's pretty cheesy. I mean, uh, well, as long as I'm getting, okay, all right. So we sat down, and at the same time, and, and this is, okay, I hope I don't get hit for plagiarism, uh, but no, I, I think it will be uh, inspiration. At the same time, uh, McCartney had just come out with um, uh, Band on the Run. And one of the songs I'm bad on, on the run is Jet. And I and I loved the, the kind of concept of the riff in Jet. And then I thought, what if I what if I kind of use the same uh, thing and just go dang and dang and dang instead of Jet, which is, uh, um, I can't remember how Jet goes, but anyway. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, actually, that, that feels like a really good, Riffs and of course you stick get rocked at the end of that and it and it worked great and so we only designed it not really as a song to be recorded and played but as a a show opener as really an right. audience participation thing it wasn't really meant to be a song it was just meant to sort of open the show so there's this massive riff and this kind of get rocked and of course you know what the audience thinks back to you <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so that, that it was designed just for that but then in the end it became the nut part of the album and then you know we had to sort of call it a song but it really wasn't written as a song you're actually writing you're, um, you're actually writing a jingle before you started uh, a jingle business when you think about yeah, that yeah that's right I was I was meant to end up 
writing jingles. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean it yeah. that um, way. <laughs> no, no, it's true. It's true. I, I, I loved jingles back then. I used to, I used to watch TV for um, because it was the era of jingles, and then all the jingles that were being written then were uh, were great, you know. And um, uh, and I'd always go around humming them, and I think, oh, gee, I'd love, I'd love to write something on like that. You know, that's what I ended up doing. In 1975, I think it was 75, did you guys do the support to Alice Cooper, Welcome to My Nightmare, didn't you? Was that right? It was later than 75, I think. It might have been 76. Because your album, which I think is one of your, your greatest songs, is um, Nothing Stays the Same Forever. I thought that was a, a really underrated song. I think it's one of your best. But I think you were touring with Alice around the time that that album came out. That's so right, yeah. That's right. It was a, a, the album's called Touche, and we uh, it was the the last album we recorded. And um, nothing stays the same forever was just out of the box. I think what had happened by then, I'd sort of come to the real, realization that you know the band wasn't going to last that much longer. The, this idea of oh, um, that's right. Again, uh, Tony Hogarth, who was in the record company, he just just blurted out one day when we were talking about our problems with the band. He said, well, nothing stays the same forever. And I thought, oh, yeah, guess what? Well, that's all right. <laughs> and then I thought, rather than write a song that sounded like Hush, I just wanted to write a song. Um, just, just something that I thought I, I kind of liked. And, uh, it, was, and, and uh, it was a big departure from um, your normal stuff. Uh, massive, <laughs> massive. And, and if yeah. we were true to marketing we would write a hush song you know uh you know full-blown rock and roll but i just i just felt like writing this and everyone else thought oh no that sounds good it was sort of has that kind of melancholy to it because it was a song really at the end of the day about the end of the band um yeah so you know i I was i I agree with you brian i think that's by far the best song that um hush ever did and um and it was yeah uh, uh, it wasn't. Uh, it, it didn't achieve the heights that it should have. Simply because it was like, "What's Hush doing a song like that for?" Yeah. You know. Uh, but I was, no, was proud great. of it. I still am. I still am. I'd I'd drag it out and listen to it quite often. Um, you know, I think I think it's a great song. Um, a lot of phaser in it. But, uh, yeah, it's, no, it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, 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 thank you. Hush finishes, 
And now we're gonna. What are we gonna do? Exactly. Gonna write some jingles. Uh, gonna write some jingles. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Well, what happened was that when we were recording that last album, Touche, um, we were recording it in Melbourne in a place called TCS, which is the Channel Nine Studios in Melbourne. But one day uh, we were just going to the studio, and this guy who was the keyboard player in the bootleg band. Uh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, and he drives up in a silver Alfa Romeo. And I thought, hello. You know, I didn't think bootleg band, you know, was doing that well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've had all these number one albums and number one singles and stuff, and we're not making that kind of money. Uh, In fact, we're we're barely making ends meet. And so uh, I said to the engineer, I said, what's the story with the, you know, the, you know, and he said, oh, he writes jingles. I said, what are jingles? <laughs> and they said, you know, the ads, you know, the songs for ads. I said, ooh, I, said, I reckon I could do that. And so when the band broke up, I already had in my mind, I should maybe have to go at writing these jingles, see what I can do. I had no idea who to approach or what to do or whatever. So I started from scratch and anyway, somehow, uh, I got to write a couple of things. They were successful, and then just went from there. So, what was what were the first ones? Was Suzanne's one of yours? Yeah, Suzanne was uh, a, a, an early a big hit, and it was interesting because the the ladies who who wrote the words this goes with that at Suzanne this goes with that. There was all sorts of people trying to pitch for this business. It was a big piece of business, and uh, there was all these men writing you know, about Suzanne. Oh, you'll look fabulous in Suzanne or, you know, you know, oh, you'll, you'll be so hot when you wear, you know, that kind of, that sort of thinking, right? And these two women who were just sort of brought in and said, oh, well, why don't you have a go as well? You know, you've got nothing better to do. Just, you know, write something if you like, see how you go. And they said, women don't, aren't going to respond to that. What women are interested in is that if they buy something, will it mix and match with something else? And so they wrote, this goes with that at Suzanne, which no, no bloke is ever going to write because they don't think like a woman. Yeah, um, genius. And they came, to, yeah, they came to me and said, look, can you do something catchy with that? And I said, can I? This goes <laughs> with that. And so, you know, it, it, it kind of writes itself. So, um, and that's how that, that happened. That, yeah, and that, that sort of kicked on with a whole lot of other jobs that came after that. I, you know, it was at McDonald's and thing and, you know. Levi's, whatever, you know, there was uh, uh, all of a sudden I was flavor of the month. Well, yeah, well, the Qantas and bloody uh, Toyota yeah. and uh, Decore yeah. and uh, the 10 News theme. It's a, yeah, a couple there you might have, uh, you know, lucked on. Yeah, yeah. no, so it was sort of, um, yeah, it, I was the newcomer at the time. There was a lot of, uh, about three or four other guys who were really fantastic writers. I mean, they were, and I still, you know, Put them on a pedestal. Uh, Peter Best was one. Oh yeah. Um, you know Mike Brady. Um, a few other guys who were you know were fantastic. But they they inspired me to try and write better stuff as well. I mean, most people think jingles. I oh, yes, knock those things out in five seconds. Now, uh, honestly, it is an art. It is a. It is like doing a cryptic crossword puzzle with music yeah. um, to 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 understand what the product is, who the audience is. Uh, it's not just a matter of writing a catchy tune. It's just a matter of, you know, what, what's Qantas about? Well, Qantas is about the spirit of Australia. It's about making people feel proud. Um, 
you know, what's uh, McDonald's about? It's uh, about, you know, um, you know, enjoyment and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, it, it's more complicated than that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I love the kind of uh, the, the whole uh, the thinking that goes behind it all. And I, I seem to, you know, be fairly good at doing all that. Bloody oath. One of, one of the hardest things, I think, with Jingles, um, I've made a few TV ads myself, but you've only got 29 seconds. Trying to get a piece of music to resolve in 29 seconds or 15 seconds, that's really hard. Yeah, and it has to be 29 seconds on the dot. Correct. It cannot be one yeah. tiny little bit over. It can't be, you know, it can't be any less. And it's got to make sense. You've got to have a hook. Somehow it's got to build into it. Um, yeah, no, you're right. It's, that's, that's all part of the cryptic crossword puzzle. Yeah. Of, um, well, trying to make it make a, sense. If you're writing a song, if you're writing a song, you go for three minutes, you go for two minutes, you go for four minutes. Who cares? Yeah. But, yeah, yeah it's, it's a really precise art. And, um, Absolutely. Uh, well done. And, uh, jingles are a, a a thing of their period, of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're right, they're mm-hmm. an art form. Of all the jingles you've written, do you have a favourite? Well, I mean, this goes without Susanna has, is, a, is a favourite simply because it was uh, uh, this early, you know, big hit. And there's a, there was a whole bunch of those. But of the ones I didn't write, uh, one of the favourites is Decore where we used the song Duke of Earl. Yeah. And uh, what what had happened was the uh, agency had presented the client with any number of these, you know, fantastic exotic ads. And the client just kept knocking them back and knocking them back. And finally, the, the guy who was the creative director was so pissed off that he thought, okay, fine. Let's do something really stupid. Uh, yeah, we'll present that. Yeah, see how you go with that. You know, and so he, he came and briefed me. He said, oh, look, there's this song, Duke of Earl, instead of Duke, 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 Duke of Earl. You know, why don't you do the core It sounds stupid, right? No, yeah, no, no. Anyway, um, I said, no, I thought, I thought it was a pretty good idea. <laughs> so we did it, and it took the Corey from the bottom of the pile to the number one shampoo within like five seconds. Yeah. And it was uh, massive because it's one of those things you go, no, it's not stupid. It actually, what it says is that people sing in the shower and they love, you know, doing something catchy and sort of dumb and and all that kind of stuff. And it was, to say it was catchy would be an understatement. So that was great. And and of course, the other one that I didn't like uh, in terms of a tune was uh, the the Qantas scene with the, the kids flying around the world, what happened there was that uh, I was approached and someone said, uh, look, Jeff Dixon, who was the, the head of Qantas at the time, he, he'd seen the, uh, watched the carols by candlelight and he saw these kids, choir, singing carols. And uh, he thought, oh, you know, could we get them to sing something, a song like Still Call Stay Home? And so they approached me and asked me and I said, can we? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. And I said, look, we'll treat it. Well, I'll make the thing as big as humanly possible. Still Call Strahan is our de facto national anthem. So, yeah. you know, uh, let's make it as big and as fantastic as possible. And 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 it's, fant- it's great that we didn't get someone well-known to sing it as opposed to just a whole bunch of kids. Yeah. 
it's really their voices. Uh, they're, they're just honest. They're, nobody's famous or anything like that. It's just natural kids. They couldn't be more Australian. Uh, I don't know how many letters, emails or whatever I, I got over the years of people saying, oh, I just flew back you know, home and they played still call Australia home and I got all weepy and oh my God. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I reckon the chords to that song are yeah. almost the same as Walsing Matilda. Yeah. It, it, you know, I mean, uh, I reckon, I reckon Peter, Peter Allen's done like, a bit of a job on Walsing Matilda with that one, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah no, that's right. I think that's what he would, he would have been inspired by. And, and, and Peter Allen was a good jingle writer. Yeah. Oh, was he? No, he would have made a good one. <laughs> <laughs> he writes like a jingle writer does. I've got to ask you, look, when we did the um, the countdown tour together, yeah. I'm fair thinking, you, ha- you had more flames than Maui. Um, yeah. I've got to <laughs> ask you, where, did, where and how did you get the flamethrower guitar? Tell me about okay. that. Okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, as you remember, we started off that tour in Newcastle. And yep. we did we did the show, and then, then we did Sydney. And, and somewhere during oh. Sydney, you know, I got approached by the crew and they said look the crew are a bit shy they're not they don't know how to ask you this but I hope it's not offensive but they were wondering would you be interested in in having flames coming out the top of your guitar I said (laughs) sir would I (laughs) how do we go about doing that without me killing myself again and getting blown up they said no 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 it's perfectly safe it's perfectly safe and so I said yeah bring it on so, um, and so that's how it happened. And, and, and so we did it for the first time in Melbourne. And what you see in the, the video of uh, Countdown Spectacular is what we did in Melbourne. 
And what happened was that they had a little button on my strap, uh, which would trigger it. And um, Keith would uh, say, uh, you know, come over just when I'm about to do the solo. He'd say, you know, you know, rock and roll or something. And he'd hit that, that button and then the flames would go just as I'm starting the solo. And bizarrely, the, the thing lasted exactly the length of the solo. <laughs> so, you know, it just, you know, it's perfect. So I'm really, really happy that um, it's on, you know, it's uh, in perpetuity on, you know, on video. It was awesome. It was just like, oh, my God, have a look at this. That's <laughs> rock and roll. Yeah. Mannix uh, tried to uh, get uh, the gokets going with the uh, sort of the guitar ensemble uh, backing you up there. Yeah, yeah, no, well, absolutely. So he's well, very was, good at that kind of thing. <laughs> well, we we had there's like sixty people on stage or something, and there was I think nine of us around one microphone, and Toddy Goldsmith was not really pitching that well, and I thought I don't want to be part of this, so I thought I want to hang out with Les out in the front. So I get got a guitar, and so I'd come out and be miming next to Les and rocking on with Les. And then Mark Gable said, "Hey, I want to be a gokhead too." And then Ronnie Gong's over. There was about eight of us all being gokheads playing the guitar, yeah. miming the guitar, and that it was so much fun. It was great. Yeah, no, and, look, um, was, that's a very, very memorable tour. Yeah, I remember Frank Holden on the plane somehow managed to get the uh, the intercom from the stewardess. And he said yeah. something about, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sir Leslie Gockles. I mean, this <laughs> big announcement about you, we're all going, oh, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. <laughs> oh, it was so much yeah. fun. There was a lot of funny Mark, things on that tour. I remember Mark um, Gable telling me that he'd been working out with you in the morning. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. And then he says, um, oh, Leslie's just gone to have a nap. And I said, no way. Les Gock doesn't have a nap. <laughs> no, it's what are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to tell me there's no Father Christmas and a Billy Idol's gay? Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no. It was just some funny things. What I remember, I do remember um, we love uh, John English uh, and, uh, you know, yeah. RIP. Uh, but uh, I remember uh, one day leaving uh, the hotel and getting on the bus and everyone you know, has their bags in the foyer and stuff and they're just putting and they all get put on and, and, and John English gets on the on the bus and says, has anyone seen my bag? And uh, JPY says, have you had a look under your eyes? <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny little bugger, John, isn't he? <laughs> he is. He was hilarious. And I think it was, I think it was uh, Frankie J uh, and Sarsinian sitting uh, in – while Sherbert were sound checking and, and doing, and Sherbert's a very serious young man, um, and they were doing, you know, very serious uh, rehearsal. And uh, I remember, I think it was Frankie J and JPY uh, saying, uh, "Love your early stuff." <laughs> <laughs> well, when Leo Sayer was singing, um, I don't know, "When I Need Love" or something like that. Yeah. And then blow me dead on the last night. Out comes JPY in a miniskirt and lipstick and dressed up like a girl. Oh my God. And what is on stage with Leo? Oh, it was very yeah. funny. Very no, funny. Good job. That's right. So is the, was, um, is the interceptors enough for you these days, Les? Well, it is because, I mean, I kind of 
Um, I like playing, but I mean, I don't love touring. I don't like the idea of having to, you know, um, appear all the time. It just sort of takes the gloss off it. Uh, so I, I love the idea that when we play, and we've done maybe 15 gigs, it's not a lot, but, but 15 different charities or, you know, yeah. Uh, fantastic. The last one we did was for Australian Prostate Cancer, which is very, you know, yep. men of our age, you know, The next one is uh, we're doing is for a Women's Justice Network, which is helping women who, you know, transition from, you know, uh, being incarcerated to being out in the workplace. And kids' things, is, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of diseases and stuff that... Um, and there's so many, so many fantastic charities out there. I mean, if we can, you know, raise a couple of dollars for for people and enjoy ourselves, and the people who come along enjoy themselves, and we can relive the past, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, so, good on you. Yeah. So sensational catching up with you. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, and thanks for thanks for having a chat with us. It's been bloody terrific. Great to talk hey, to both of you, and, and, and Brian just. Keep going. Keep saying you're not worthy. You know, I love all that. <laughs> I will keep it up. Um, Sir Les Gock. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Les Gock. We're going to finish the show with that song that you talked about, which uh, is called Nothing Stays the Same Forever, which is a l- really, really good song. Yeah, it was a bit of a departure for them, but, um, you know, they were growing as a band and um, I think that song, I, I think it's probably my favourite Hush song and it was – Pretty unlike a lot of the early stuff, but um, I thought it was quite a classy song, yep. and I still do. Yep, uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, so we'll finish the show with uh, with that one. I'd forgotten what a good song it was until I listened to it again recently, so uh, that's coming up. That's a treat for you. Uh, and uh, coming up in episodes on the way, we, mm-hmm. have, we have some great Australian names. Mark Holden's going to join us to have a chat about... You know, Carnations and uh, Idol and uh, and what he's doing David these Asselhoff. days. Exactly, all those things. Deborah Conway's going to talk to us about the book she's written called The Book of Life and about her life and times. Yeah, it's good. She's very interesting and it's a, a great little story. Brian Cannum, your mate from uh, Pseudo Echo. Yeah, he was good too. Um, you know, find out what he did for a living before we picked up the guitar, which was a bit of a surprise to me, but anyway. Yeah, a bit of a surprise to everyone, I reckon. And Dave Warner from the suburbs. Now, Dave has done a – he's a writer these days of of crime fiction. Yeah. Whodunits. So we'll talk to him about that. We'll talk to him about his days uh, on the road and a very famous gig he did with you at Frankston. Yeah, that mighty Pier Hotel in Frankston. Yeah, them are the days. Wow. And Peter yeah. Williams is also going to join us. Pete was the lead singer of The Groove, who were a massive band in the late part of the 60s, early 70s, uh, had uh, Simon Says and Soothe Me and What Is Soul. They were a really good band. I loved them. So uh, caught up with yeah. Peter New Zealand too. So all that's coming up in future episodes of Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is. Well, that's fantastic. It's just a chock-a-block schedule, a buffet of... Great entertainment. And that means you've got time to give Murcotts a call and uh, get your driving sorted out. Well, I'll just give them the number, Kev, if you don't mind. That'd be handy, One, bro. Do that. Uh, all right, I'll try it now. one 576 That number again, Kev. one 576 
Uh, yes, live from the penthouse. Uh, that's it for another episode. Thank you, Brian. Uh, take care. Uh, rubbing shoulders with any of the rich and famous or poor and insignificant in the next, you know, 24 hours or whatever? Well, I had all of the, uh, you know, the V8 supercar drivers up here. And they were all getting pissed last night. So, yeah, I've, I've been mingling with the uh, supercar drivers. Oh, right. Yesterday and uh, this week, I don't know, probably, I don't know, we might go and see what Paddy Newton's up to. Sounds like a plan. Thank you, Brian. (laughs) Thanks, Kev. I need someone to talk to. I need someone who needs me. There's been some changes in my life. Every beginning, there has got to be an end. With every hello, there's goodbye. No, no, no.